Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jeffrey Paternostro. Jeff is the senior prospect writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me again. When you came on a couple years ago, it was your first time doing a national top 100 list or 101 in this case has what's changed you've now done a couple of these have you changed your process at all what goes into compiling the bp 101 i don't think it's radically changed obviously we've refined things um our value set has probably changed a little bit but again not significantly um the line i used i think this year in a chat at bp around the 101 was it's not really a prep list except when it's a prep list so we get our, our prospect team like in a metaphorical virtual room um, and just sort of go down the, the list of players and who we think is, you know, we tier it out. We think who's the best prospect in this tier. You know, where do we think the split is? You know, people argue, oh, I think he should be 10 spots higher because X, Y, and Z. You know, I take that into account. We just make draft after draft after draft after conference call after conference call after conference call. And, Eventually, at the end of the day, you come out with 101 names in an order that I'm vaguely satisfied with for at least a few hours after we lock it. <laughs> and then uh, we go from there. Uh, Kevin Goldstein, one of my predecessors in this job, who's now a special assistant with the Astros, used to say it's a snapshot in time. So we locked this list around oh, probably a little before Christmas um, just for, for book publishing purposes. And I have to say, I guess the biggest difference is I'm, I have fewer rankings I already hate than I had my first year doing this. I don't know if that means I'm actually better at it or if I'm just uh, getting more stubborn. I guess we'll see how it plays out in the next year. I'm interested in, before we do some scouting reports on some of the top players on the list, I want to ask you just in general about how grading may have changed with power. We're seeing more and more players with mm-hmm. home run power. They're using the launch angle and they're using StatCast data to adjust their swings. So I'm curious if grading out power has changed over the last few years now that power is more common. So we're reworking our sort of like internal handbook for this stuff right now. And the two biggest changes um, are sort of the two impetuses for, for reworking it other than just like freshening it up since it's been a couple of years, is how do we deal with fastball velocity and power uh, and game power, raw power? That's good. Next, I was going to ask you about fastball velocity, so that there we go. Right. So I have, uh, you know, I, I've done a various methods at the ballpark over the years, various size notebooks, various shorthand. Sometimes I use, I've used uh, actual sheets. Sometimes I haven't. But the, I do use sheets for pitchers because I find that, that useful for organizing my thoughts. Um on that side of the game, at least. And I have a repurposed team scouting sheet. I don't know exactly how old it is at this point, but it says a five fastball velocity is 89 to 91. That's average fastball velocity. And that just hasn't been true for a while now. Um, you know, depending on which uh, sourcing you use for sort of your pitch FX data, you're going to see the average fastball velocity and it's just put out four seam and sinker too, if you want, but somewhere between 92 and 93 miles an hour. And really at this point, really trending towards 93. So, when you see a guy that's you know sitting 92 to 95, that's you know, average-ish fastball velocity nowadays. And you know when I started doing this eight years ago, if you had a double A starter sitting like 92 to 95, you'd be like, ooh, that's that's a that's a guy, that's a guy to keep an eye on. Now like you see that in A ball, and it's you know teams have three or four pitchers with that kind of velocity 
and they're A-ball rotations, and they're short-season rotations sometimes. You, know, you see way more relievers touching 100. Um, so that's hasn't changed how we grade fastballs, I think, overall, but I think it has changed sort of one of the inputs. Velocity is an input into, into the fastball grade, and I think a more important one than sometimes it gets uh, credit for. Um, some of that's self-selection. Uh, there's just, even nowadays, you know, there's way more guys that throw 88 to 90 that you never hear of. You know, you know everybody wants to point to like Kyle Hendricks. Well, Kyle Hendricks is great. Kyle Hendricks has plus plus command and a great changeup too. But as far as just guys that like fastball velocities and everything, 97, 98 miles an hour gets you a lot more chances than if you throw 88 to 90. That's just, that's just the reality of it. Uh, and there's just fewer of those guys out there. So you see more of them in the majors or a larger percentage of them. With game power, so we did a roundtable about this at Prospectus, and you know, sort of jumping off specifically, I think sort of Ozzy Albies, because Ozzy Albies was a miss for us, sort of, kind of. Like I don't know, it's it's weird to say it because if you look at his top line numbers, I think we had him as like an OFP sixty, likely fifty five, which would essentially be like a three or four win player, which is basically what he was in in two thousand eighteen. Just the shape of the performance was completely different than what I expected. If I was expecting an above average plus regular there, you know, a guy that's got a little bit of a power for his size, maybe low double digit home runs, but kind of a, a gap to gap hitter, steals a bunch of bases, you know, doubles and triples, good defender at second. Maybe gets there sort of more like, a, you know, the good DJ LeMayhew seasons or something like that. Instead, he did it by, as, as you said, like sort of making a major swing change and hitting a bunch of home runs. Um, and he's not the only guy to do it recently. And there is, again, some survivorship bias here because we only hear about the guys that changed their swing and had positive results. But it is a it is a real thing. It's a real philosophy within uh, within hitting development and hitting instruction circles, certainly. You know, not it's not everybody buys into it, and you'll get sort of debates on is it really a launch angle, is it really upper, like what is, what is actually happening here, what sort of what the mechanics of it actually are, and what are the terms we tend to use, I think more more generally in the in the baseball Twitterverse and elsewhere, are, are the actual precise terms. But from a valuation standpoint, it comes down to like I just can't predict a swing change for, let's say Andres Jimenez, who is that kind of body type. Guy with good with barrel control. Who again, if he's if if he's uh, we rated we ranked him as a sixty fifty five, uh, and again if he has that kind of output as an above average or plus regular, I would expect him to be you know ten ish home runs. He'll run into a few, um, but a guy that hits for a high average, steals a bunch of bases, you know speedy doubles triples guy, plays a really good shortstop. That would be the sort of the the expected good outcome for him. I can't project. I just can't do it because I haven't seen it is a thing. And nobody I've talked to has seen him attempt that. So I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if it's if it's something that's uh, in the near future for him as a as a development point. What I can tell you is something that came up in the in the roundtable is what are the types of players that have success with this? What are the sort of the markers where maybe we can't project it, but maybe we shouldn't be shocked? And I think what we sort of came up with is. A criteria of uh, good approach, so good knowledge of the strike zone, knowing which pitches you can hit hard and which ones you can't. Uh, the barrel control, you know, the plus hit tool, if you want to call it that, but the barrel control to you know, manipulate the barrel within the zone. 
because um, that makes it probably easier to do swing change stuff if you already have that sort of inherent ability to manipulate the barrel. Uh, and raw power is sort of then that's where I think what Jimenez would would uh, fall short. But you know Daniel Murphy is a classic example of this. You know Daniel Murphy would put on a show in batting practice. You know even going back to the minors and he'd hit 12 home runs a year uh, with the Mets before he really broke out. But those 12 home runs, he would essentially zone a pitch inside and hit it into the like, second deck home runs. They were long home runs. Sort of the the scouting cliche here is that, you know, raw power is how far, game power is how many. You know, Murphy had the raw power. When he hit them, they went very far. He just didn't had unlocked his swing to get the how many part. So that those are the things you look for. You know, a guy on this list that I think I mentioned in the in his actual blurb for the 101 in the book that could have that kind of breakout again i'm not predicting it is cabrian hayes of the pirates i think i even say if i really believed that he could tweak his swing uh and unlock that power he'd be hanging at him 55 or thereabouts i'd have him 40 spots higher and i know other sources do uh it's just whether you really believe in him he has all the tools good approach hits lasers um i mean it's great pull side recognition he has just doubles over the third baseman's head i saw his futures game bp um he put on a show there uh, to the pull side. It was clearly plus raw power. And he had a pretty big home run in the game, too. So it's in there. Um, it's just not something I can project. I think it's something that has to be in the back of my mind. But when I'm going to actually write the report, you know, it's got to be what you saw. It's really interesting you mentioned Albies, who you say you kind of missed on. And I'm curious how you feel about players like that in general. I'm a Red Sox fan, so I follow their prospects more closely. And what you said for Albies, oh, a three or four win player, and that's what he ended up being. He may exceed that. He was he was so young, but mm-hmm. he was a different kind of player. And I'm curious, I've always thought about that with relation to Xander Bogarts, because mm-hmm. Xander Bogarts, we were told that he was going to be a good player, and he ended up being a very good player, but a very different kind of player that we were told he would be. We were told he was going to be a big power hitting shortstop who probably wouldn't be able to play shortstop and would have to move to third. And it turns out he's a good hitter with some power, but he plays shortstop fine. And I don't think that elite power ever developed for him. So it's kind of a miss, but also not really. I'm curious for you as someone who makes these rankings, what you think of players like that, who you say will be good and end up being good, but for somewhat different reasons than you project. So I guess it's, drills down into what is the purpose of sitting around and spending months making a a top 101 prospect list and is that sort of that's the end product of what we do all year but is that the best way to express what we do as as writers as evaluators as a prospect team um ultimately the market forces here tell me i have to make a you know a series of team lists a year-end national prospect list usually around 100 guys or thereabouts and organizational rankings. You know, that's just, I am not a scout. I don't work in a, in a major league front office or in player development or in scouting or anything like that. Um, you know, I am creating a product for readership. So is the goal here to be right? And if so, is, is the goal here to be, I guess, is, is the goal to be accurate or is the goal to be right? So I was not, my evaluation of Ozzy Albies was not accurate. In the end, I don't know if it was wrong because ultimately you have to write what you see, as I said before. Um, the example I use of this, and I've used it a lot over the years, uh, you know, in podcasts or media hits when this kind of topic comes up, is Jacob deGrom. 
So I saw Jacob deGrom in AA, and he looked fine. You know, it was like touch 95, good sink, slider and change. He wasn't even throwing the curveball yet, but slider and change both flashed but weren't consistent. You know, averaged slightly above pitches. And, of course, by – this was probably, geez, not even – a year before he debuted in the majors, uh, maybe about a year out, a year before he debuted in the majors. And it, of course, from, from day one in, in Queens, he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. Obviously some things happened in the interim, but if you came to me and said, Oh, I had Jacob deGrom as an ace or a number two starter after the 2013 season, here's my report. I wouldn't hire you. Because I don't think you know what you were looking at. So that's the that's the other part of it. Like if you said Ozzy Albies was a 30 home run hitter, you know, in his, you know, double A season in the minors, be like, well, why? I mean, maybe maybe you can explain it to me and what you saw. And but that's a big projection. Because if you look at what happened with, you know, Albies is probably two grades of game power with DeGrom. It's two grades of fastball, two grades of command and probably two grades of jumps on the on the secondary stuff as well, not to mention that he added a new pitch. Like, this happens. You know, it's, we talk about 99th percentile ha- outcomes happen to one out of about 100 dude. But it's not something you can project. I can do that to any number of pitchers in, in AA and create an ace out of raw cloth. I, it's, not a, it's not a productive exercise for me as a writer and an evaluator. Because you're going to be wrong 99 out of 100 times. I'm curious. You mentioned Kyle Hendricks earlier. And uh, there is so much emphasis on velocity now. And velocity matters. It's really hard to hit balls that are going 98 miles an hour. But I'm curious, as you look at the pitchers on the list, just any of these lists in general, if guys like Hendricks, or if you want to go back to these guys who are productive, who don't throw hard, Mark Burley and, you know, Weaver for a while— are those guys the most likely types of players to fall through the cracks who aren't listed or are very low, who end up having productive careers? The soft tossing pitchers with great command? Sure. I mean, there's a couple guys that would sort of qualify in that on this list. You know, Logan Allen, he's left-handed, which makes things a little bit different. Um, you know, Tristan McKenzie has always been in the in the Cleveland system, has always been a bit a projection bet because he's like six foot five and 170 pounds. But he's never really developed you know, that mid-90s velocity, he sits more low 90s with a big curve. Um, but he's, again, he's always been young for his level and always produced. You know, it's really difficult to predict, you know, who's going to have that plus command and whose command is only average. In a lot of cases, that's what it comes down to. It's how confident are you sort of fine-tuning your report around a, around a grade of command. Because that's the difference for a lot of these guys. Um, the guys that maybe more up and down arms, swingman types, that just don't quite have the, you know, aren't able to work within those fine margins. Because hitters are very good at hitting. You know, they can hit 96 to 98 if it's not located well. They're certainly going to hit 88 to 90 if it's not located well. Now, there's movement, there's tunneling, there's a lot of different things we can sort of drill down into now from a, uh, uh analytics statistical standpoint. You know, obviously, like all these teams have, Trackman data now and their minor league parks for the most part and they get that information too which can certainly be useful if you can contextualize it and sort of match it to also what's happening from a from sort of a you know eyewitness standpoint as well i think you need i think you do need both halves there at least from a 
from a pro evaluation standpoint to get the best uh, development results and sort of the best uh, information. And that's just uh, always going to be a gap between the public facing evaluations and pro scouting departments or pro professional player development departments. Like I'm just not going to have that data and it's, it's data, it's all data. Um, and it's becoming, I think a more and more important data set, especially for finding, you know, outliers, you know, the guys that might have be able to have more success at lower velocities. I, do I really need TrackMan to tell me Forrest Whitley's really good? Do I really need TrackMan to tell me Sixto Sanchez is really good? You know, I can, you know, I can, I can read the radar gun. I can watch the, the way their stuff moves, the way they mix pitches and, and tell you that. The interesting thing for me is going to look at where, where do I disagree um, strongly with maybe what the, what the analytics, whatever my analytics department is putting out there, whether it, whether it's, you know, TrackMan, you know, raw pitch data or some sort of uh, minor league prospect or minor league performance modeling, you know, where are the, where are the actual gaps there? Where do we disagree? Because that's where you really find, I think, value nowadays. You know, this is obviously more of a, you know, a more of a baseball team model than maybe a public-facing prospect model. But if you're all using the same data, you know, same data sets and manipulating the same data sets, whether it's, you know, um, StatCast or, or TrackMan in the minors or whatever else uh, you might get, you know, the data sets you can, teams can buy from third-party sources, which also exist. You know, you can have the best analytics team in the world, but if you're all working from the same data, you, the, the gains there are going to be incremental. Where the data disagrees with your scouts, I think, is, is the interesting point where you can actually find maybe value that other teams can't. Uh, and, you know, that might be where I'm missing. Again, what is the purpose of my list? Is it to be a exact uh, ordinal ranking of what I think these guys are going to have for major league careers? Not really, because they're also all at very different points in their prospect development. You know, we have Wander Franco at number 10. He played in the Appalachian League this year. I am going to rank him at least two or three more times in all likelihood. Uh, and the ranking is going to change and the profile is going to change uh, in some way or another. You know, versus Nick Senzel, who's a couple spots ahead of him, who is basically major league ready. You know, he's going to play somewhere for the Reds this year. Who knows where? I don't even know if the Reds know at this point. But, you know, it's almost kind of like a silly thing to compare those two they're two completely different types of baseball players at this point this isn't even a pitcher and position player comparison this is these are both infielders i mean again i have no idea where stencil's gonna play but uh you know infielders by trade you know you, we can evaluate their hit and power and their glove and and whatnot but you know one's 17 year old in the appalachian league and one's a polished college bat in the upper minors so it's Again, it's a snapshot in time. I think that's all it's really, really intended to be. And, you know, people obviously are going to read different things and do it. And these stuff, this stuff is permanently on these dudes, baseball reference, minor league register page. So I have to live with that. You know, that's, that's a permanent record of what I thought at the time. And sort of going back to the DeGrom thing, the best, the best thing I can hope for is to be able to explain what I saw and then what happened. It's really interesting. I, I, wrote a piece on my website a few years ago about one of the ways that players can be underrated or overrated. And one of the ways that modern players now, with all the emphasis on prospects and everyone sees these these lists and, and people follow prospects more than they ever did, 
one of the ways a player to become underrated, habitually underrated, is to not chart high on these prospect lists. And I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that Doug DeGrom throughout his career. Now, that's gone now. After the year he had last year, everyone knows how good he is. But I feel like it took three years for DeGrom to be good before people were like, oh, yeah, he's actually just good. And they made a mistake. Right. So there's there's two forces at work here. There's what I call sort of the the non-prospect fallacy. So the idea that there are only 100 prospects in baseball at any given time. Like, there just aren't. And the difference between our 70th best prospect and our 110th best prospect is not significant, but it looks significant because sort of like the, you know, sort of like new, like the law of numbers, basically. It's an arbitrary cutoff point. Um, you know, and you don't see the tiers. You see every number is its own individual tier, which is not, again, I don't know if that's the best way to express what we're doing as writers and evaluators, but that's that's the output at the end of the year. Because that's what the readership wants. And you have to be, I think, as, you know, a guy that works for a paywalled website, you know, that's that's has to be a consideration. You have to give readers content that they're willing to pay for. And that's one of the things they want is, as my old editor, Craig Goldstein, once said to me many years ago, people love lists. They do. Um, I think it's, you know, some sort of innate human thing. We like to, to organize things into these nice little neat boxes in order preference again it's you know it's you know sort of the the high fidelity uh model you know we love year-end best album lists movie lists you know prospect lists are just another uh another aspect of that the other thing is with DeGrom specifically I think you know I saw Jacob DeGrom like he'll pitch in the majors like he was clearly a major league arm it was just a matter of you know quality um and so it's timing as well if he'd spent another six months in the minors, if I think it was, you know, it was Dylan G and John Neese both got hurt at the beginning of 2014 within like a week of each other or so, if there hadn't been a need to call him up until maybe September, maybe we would have seen that, oh, yeah, you know, a few months later in the minors, oh, he actually is like, oh, he's actually throwing like, we get reports, he's 96 to 98 now with a really good slider. And he does make a one-on-one list after that season, but it didn't happen because he, you know, the Mets had obviously, I don't know if the Mets had identified that at that point because they called up him and Rafael Montero at the same time. And it seemed like DeGrom was going to be the one to go to the bullpen uh, once, I forget who was on the shorter DL track, but once one of the pitchers came back, you know, Montero was going to stay in the rotation and DeGrom was going to go to the bullpen. And obviously that did not happen. <laughs> uh, it became quickly, uh, very clear very quickly that was not going to happen. Um, so sometimes it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, I think there is there is a it is a it is a sort of a, a lagging indicator in a lot of cases. Um, and even with individual lists, it's, uh, you know, draft stock, too. How often had how long did we keep Lucas Giolito on lists and higher than we should? Because, you know, we we have we saw him at the area code games before he blew out and he had a chance to go one one as the as a right handed prep arm. You know, how much does that sort of linger in the in the sauce of the prospect list making. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad, but, or that it's right or it's wrong, but I think it is something that does sort of uh, shape the way we think about these guys. 
And Giolito is on the opposite end of DeGrom. He's still going to get drafted in fantasy this year. Someone's going to pick him and be like, oh, this is the year he breaks out. And Byron Buxton is still going to get picked. He's going to get picked somewhat high given his performance because people are still like, he was the number one player. He was the guy. People think they're going to get like Eric Davis's uh, 25 (laughs) home run, 80 steal out of Byron Buxton. But realistically, what they're going to get is at best a Billy Hamilton type of year. It's just there is that hype with those top guys that never never goes away even when they've been bad for a long time and I, I do find that to be an incredible thing right and like you do have to make calls I'm not saying you shouldn't make calls uh if you feel strongly about these kind of things like we're gonna we're gonna make hay on having Ronald Acuna ranked earlier and higher than everyone else probably the same with Juan Soto and I'm not the kind of guy to take take victory laps on it because I know <laughs> a lot of that was somewhat luck and maybe not again is as justifiable at the time as I would like for some of these rankings, but sometimes you just get a, you make a gut call and there's guys I've obviously missed on Robert Gazelman. I may look really bad on Laoti Tavares in a couple of years. So it gets back to the, it's not a pref list except when it's a pref list. Um, you know, for fantasy, obviously you want, again, there's so much information. It's like, you want to find that outlier in the, in the draft rankings, the guy that's going to win you a league. And if Byron Buxton does go 25 and 80, he wins you a league. And if, you know, Laoti Tavares, suddenly breaks out this year and hits 300 with power as a, as a plus center fielder, you know, he can win you a title in, in Texas. Um, so you do need to, I think, take those chances sometimes, you know, as a, as an evaluator, does like, it really matter if I'm trying to think we made a big call on this year. I mean, we've always been the high source on Dustin May, even like going back to his post-draft year. You know, is it really going to matter if Dustin May breaks out this year, makes, you know, the Dodgers rotation by the by the second half or by the end of the fall, um, you know, maybe has a has a role on a on a playoff team for them or comes out next year in in 2020 and is a down ballot Cy Young guy. Like, am I like I'm still going, you know, to the park at night and filing my reports. I'm not I'm not getting invited to MLB network to, to trumpet my amazing, you know, evaluation prowess or anything. Like it doesn't matter. You, you do it because you make the call because you believe it. There's no, I think people sometimes think that we're trying to like, that we like over sort of over engineer this to make those big upside calls. It's like, it's, it's really not that simple. It's just, I really like Leody Tavares and Dustin May and ultimately it's my name on the list. So you know, that's what you're getting. There's industry feedback, there's team feedback, but, you know, our process is very much based on you know, what we see at the park. There is a little bit of news going on today. The JT Realmuto sweepstakes appears to be coming to an end. The Phillies have apparently jumped in front where we stand right now. John Heyman has been reporting that Sixto Sanchez and Jorge Afalo are the key components there, with other prospects potentially going there as well, potentially even former number one overall, Mickey Moniak. Uh, this has this deal isn't official yet. We don't know too much of what's going on. But if those are the names involved, what do you think of this deal for Miami? And what exactly are they giving up? Sanchez is a guy I saw pitch a few times in Lakewood. Um and uh, he was like my son liked him, so I hope you know <laughs> he could probably start for the Marlins and be their best pitcher now. But what are they getting if those are the names involved, and what do you think of that deal in general? So it's interesting. The you know obviously the Marlins have pretty much held fast to the demand for a, for a top 
tier prospect is the the main piece in this in any Real Moto deal. Um, they were asking for even going back to last year. They were asking for Victor Robles or Soto from the Nats. They've asked for uh, Kyle Tucker or Forrest Whitley from the Astros and various uh, various iterations. Of course, there was rumors they were asking for possibly both Nimmo and Conforto from the Mets or Cody Ballinger from the Dodgers, who are not you know strictly speaking prospects anymore, but were highly touted prospects when they were prospects and are now established uh, above average young major league players. And I think there was sort of this idea, oh, eventually, like, they're not going to re-sign him. Eventually, they'll come back to Earth, and they'll end up trading him for, like, you know, maybe a, a top 50, but not an elite prospect, and a couple other nice things. So JT Realmuto is a very, very good player, you know, signed for two years at well below market rates. Um, they ended up in six, though, at least for me, getting that top-tier potential impact player. But they got basically the riskiest possible player you could still get in that class. Um, his stuff is absolutely electric. I also saw him a couple of times in Lakewood and it was, you know, in context, it was like an 18 year old given his frame about the best stuff I've ever seen in the minors, just from what he could flash, you know, fastball up to 102, you know, devastating cut and run when he kept it more in the mid to upper nineties flashed three different secondaries at various times and just the the command and pitchability were so advanced for a, for a guy that young that wasn't even really he's officially signed as a pitcher but he was worked out as an international free agent as an infielder and they said oh you actually have a very good arm let's just try you off the mound it's like oh yeah we're now going to sign you came very clear where his where his future was going to lie so he's been first of all managed very carefully innings wise because he's very young uh, and it was given a very aggressive assignment track for his age. And that's not uncommon. Like most of the prospects, uh, pitching prospects on that list, especially the the prepper IFARs were managed similarly. But he's had some durability concerns. You know, he's been shut down a few times this year with with vague elbow soreness, which is never something you want to hear. And there's always going to be questions about whether that frame is going to, and he's listed at six foot 180, he's neither, uh, is going to hold up under a uh, a starting pitching workload, a real one, if they ever get him stretched out. So he is incredibly risky, but the payoff here is it's ace upside. Like, there's really no other way to put it. Um, the volatility here is extreme. He's going to be a really good closer. It could go like Naftali Feliz or something like that, who had his own uh, injury issues once he got up in the majors, too. You know, it could be, you never count Pedro Martinez, but, I mean, it could be Pedro Martinez. That's your 99th percentile outcome here, which isn't even in play for most prospects at 99. Um no, and we wouldn't have thought that was in play for Pedro when he was a prospect either. Right, sure. But I, my Sixto story, and look, I'm not a scout, but I do take, I, I go to Lakewood Games, my son loves it, and my wife goes, and we, we went, and we've seen him, we saw him three or four times, and Lakewood, the quality of baseball varies, and yes. um, <laughs> there were times when it's just like, this is amateur hour. I, I saw, there was like one play I saw where, I don't even know if there was an official error on the play, but there were like five misplays. It was Those were always fun, yeah. Uh, oh, it was, it was just like, my wife is sometimes like, this is like Keystone Cops. When we saw Sixto Sanchez pitch, she was like, who's this guy? What's he doing here? Yeah. It's just something different. You don't see that. Yeah, it, stand, it stands a. out. Like, it really, st- like, it's, it's, he stands out incredibly quickly. He's a very easy scout. And like I said, there's some... There's some risks in the profile. And, you know, if you're the Marlins, they got burned pretty badly last year, at least so far, trading for extremely high-risk prospects. You know, they trade the the centerpiece of the Yellish deal. You know, Lewis Brinson, 
Isan Diaz and Monty Harrison were all top 101 guys for us. But, you know, when I when I saw that deal, I'm like, oh, that's 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 good value. But that's there's a lot of risk there that could go badly. And it has so far, Um, you know, even for when they traded for. Or they traded Marcelo Zuna. You know, again, Sandy Alcantara is another guy where it's risky. Like, you know, you, you don't need the thing is that you only really need to hit on one or two of these guys, but there's a chance you hit on none and you end up sort of having done your big sell off without really improving your overall organizational health. Now, I'm going to have to see what the, 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 there's been a wide variety of names out there. You mentioned Moniac, but also uh, I've seen like Spencer Howard, Alec Bohm, uh, Adam Hazley, I think Adonis Medina in there too. So that's actually a, a fairly wide range of value. Um, I think the Phillies might want to unload Moniac because you can sell him still as a number one overall pick. His pro career has not been uh, stellar either performance-wise or sort of from a scouting standpoint. But the more overarching thing for me for the Phillies are, like, this is good. Uh, Real Muto is a upgrade over Jorge Alfaro. You know, Alfaro was a very good prospect himself. I would I would describe him at this point as an average major league catcher with incredibly high variance, even for a guy that's you know not prospect eligible anymore. He's a very good defender. I have no idea what the bat's going to look like in any given year. He still could put it together. There's huge upside there, but the bat could also completely collapse, and he's more of a more of a no hit backup. Um, I think sort of in the most likely scenario, he was an average catcher. Like their catching situation was not bad, but Hey, in a in what's going to be a tightly contested NL East, every additional win you can add, and I think Real Muto adds a few for them, is significant. But like, I just say, but like, you could solve this with money too. Like, you didn't have to give up Sixto Sanchez in this deal. You could have signed Yasmani Grandal. You could sign Manny Machado to replace Mikhail Franco and get a bigger upgrade than what you're getting in this deal, and it only costs you money. Now. You could have taken on, I don't know if the Marlins would have done this because I think they were looking to get all along a premium prospect return, but maybe you could take on contracts, you know, a, a bad contract or something and not have to give up a prospect for Rio Mudo. Maybe well, that wasn't out there. Maybe you could have flipped Sixto instead for a top line starting pitcher because there's an opportunity cost for dealing him. You know, he could have easily headlined a deal for Corey Kluber. I'm sure the uh, Cleveland was not hanging up the phone and that. There's different ways to maybe make bigger improvements to the, you know, their overall 2019 roster than what they did here. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad move necessarily. Um, I think it's just it needs to continue to be supplemented with additional ones afterwards. I'd rather have Grandall and Sixto than Real Muto and no one else. I think what the Phillies are doing, in all honesty, is Real Muto, I think, came into public consciousness this year as the best catcher in baseball. And I think the Phillies made that move because they're softening the blows for not getting Harper and Machado, which was the hype this year. I don't think it's going to happen now with either player. And I think they thought that this might help. And it does make them better in the short term. But I think given the resources available, I'm not convinced it was the best move they made. I do want to ask you about a couple prospects at the top of the list. I think it's great when there's a prospect that everyone is excited about. And Vlad Jr. is that guy. Vlad Jr. is like already famous as a prospect and not just because of his name. When he played that game in Montreal last year, they played that game, the uh, one of the last spring training games the Blue Jays play in Montreal. 
He had like 50,000 people chanting his name. It was unbelievable. The Blue Jays just were out of it last year, and the fans would just periodically start chanting, we want Vladdy, we want Vladdy. This is great for baseball. The service time manipulation here is not going to be great for baseball. But what is his ceiling? I mean, he's drawing comps to his father. Is that fair? So I wrote an article at him, and not only just about Vlad, but dealing with him at the beginning of the year because I made a point of seeing him the first weekend of the season <laughs> in New Hampshire. And then I saw him the weekend after that because they were in Hartford or vice versa. I don't remember the exact order. Um, and after the first game I saw him, I'm like, well, like, give me a reason not to put an OFP 80 on this guy because after one game, it's just like, this is, this is weird. You don't, again, it's like the, when we were talking about Sixto earlier, it just stands out. Like, it's just not something you see in the minor league field at any given time. This is the upper minors. You know, he's playing on a field with guys that are very good prospects, both on his own team. And, you know, Bo Bichette was on that field. Brendan Rogers was on that field. Garrett Hampson, all top 101 guys. You know, they're guys with pitched in the majors or played in the majors that you see at that level too. And it's just like, it's another level. Um, can he be as good as his father? Getting back to that article, I kind of very, very, very subtly implied that that was possible. But like the cops that come up for this kind of profile are, are like guys you just don't comp because you look and you talked about sort of like you don't comp Pedro for Sixto Sanchez because that's stupid. Like you don't comp Miguel Cabrera here because that's that's crazy. It's 320 with 35 home runs every season. It's the best right handed hitter in baseball for probably, you know, close to a decade, depending on when you think, you know, he took over from Albert Pujols. But it's possible. And, like, I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying it to to gin up interest in the list. I'm not saying it to be, like, hyperbolic or to to make a splashy call to get my, you know, reports and uh, writings read more widely. It's just, yeah, it's possible. It's, it's about the best combination of back control, power, and approach I've seen. He's 19, especially in a teenager. Um, like he just like, there's the old cliche hitters hit, like he just hits and he'll hit anything. Um, he is, yeah, we don't give 80 hit tools. I think I, I wrote him up in the eyewitness report. I went seven, seven cause I'm a little bit of a coward, but you know, that's what you can responsibly write. It's still 330 home runs, even at wherever you think, if you think he ends up at first base or even DH, that's an all-star. Um, I think he can play third for a little bit at least. Like he's not, he's like, you know. You can play Miguel Andahar at third. It's kind of a, a similar strengths and weaknesses, even though the the body is very different. But like he's gonna he's gonna hit. He looked like a major leaguer in April. He never got called up. He probably won't get called up until the end of April anyway, because they're gonna claw back the extra year. And it's just it seems like such a waste to me because you know you saw sort of what Acuna and Soto did last year, and it's. You know, helping there. You know, Nationals didn't make the playoffs. You know, Acuna, you could argue, is a big reason the, that Atlanta did. But it's just so good for baseball. Like, it's just, it's joyful. It's, you know, it's, we, we've reduced everything and like service time was sort of the, sort of the leading edge of this. But it's very much now we, we pride ourselves on efficiency over just like, I think like the joy of, winning and Guerrero's a winning player he's a guy that you can put right in the middle of your lineup and he is going to be an impact bat and like aesthetically he's a lot of fun too 
because he's very, very uh, lively. Obviously, the bloodlines there are interesting. But it's just, yeah, he's the best prospect in baseball. I didn't think I'd be ready about him because he thought he'd get promoted uh, and not be eligible. There wasn't really any internal debate. I kind of knew from April if he was eligible, he was going to be number one. Uh, and yeah, it's like, I don't know what to tell you. It's He might be Miguel Cabrera other than that. I mean, I can't wait to watch him. I mean, it just as, a, as someone with no stake, I'm not a Blue Jays fan. I mean, I liked his dad when I was a kid, but I, I hope I hope he lives up to the hype, and I hope he comes in in his rookie year and he hits 320 and 35 home runs and everyone's going crazy, and he might have a chance to do that even if he doesn't come up until May. We'll see. And I know that you are a prospect guy, so this might be the wrong audience, the wrong guy to ask this to, but I'm curious, just in general, the Red Sox just won the World Series, and three mm-hmm. or four years ago, when all these sites, including BP, ranked team prospects, the Red Sox were near the top of that list. They yeah. traded most of those guys away. The, they sure did. <laughs> the Cubs were also a part of that list three or four years ago, mm-hmm. and they traded most of their top prospects away as yep. well. These teams have won the World Series recently. They're really good, and they're going to be good yeah. this year too. Are prospects yep. overrated in today's game? So I don't want to use the phrase overrated per se, because there's— it, they did trade a lot of the, maybe they did trade a lot of those guys away. Uh, guys that were on those lists also include Andrew Benintendi, Mookie Betts, Raphael Devers, Chris Bryant, you know Wilson Contreras. So it's not so much that prospects are overrated; it's picking. I, I don't say picking the right prospects. Self scouting is underrated. No, one thing about Dave Dombrowski, I'll use him as 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 the example here. He never really gets burned on these deals. Now, Michael Kopech might still turn into a top-of-the-rotation starter, but he hasn't yet. Um, you know, even going back to the Cameron Maben for Miguel Cabrera trade. Cameron Maben was a, probably a top-10 prospect in baseball by most sources at that point. But he identified, I'll quote another one of my pre- predecessors here, Jason Parks, who has a World Series ring with the Cubs, uh, and now is the scouting director for the Diamondbacks. You know, the job of your farm system, your minor league system, of your your organizational health has one goal and one goal only, and that's to create major league value. Now, there's two ways you can do that. You can develop good major league players like Mookie Betts, Andrew Benintendi, or you can trade them for good major league players like Chris Sale. You know, they're perfectly valid ways to do it, but you know the end the end game's got to be winning. And I'll I'll, I'll spoil it. Right now, the bottom three teams in our organizational rankings this year are the Brewers, the Cubs, and the Red Sox. All of whom, you know, the Brewers too, obviously, haven't won a World Series yet, but won the division last year, had some of the best farm systems in baseball three, four, or five years ago. Um, there's no pennant for leading our organizational rankings. Our top two systems in baseball, which again, I don't think is going to be a surprise to anyone, are the San Diego Padres and the Tampa Bay Rays. You know, that's nice. That might turn into something in a couple of years, but... It's not the end goal, um, you know, and as a prospect writer, you're right. It's I'm, I'm sort of berating my own audience here is you shouldn't necessarily we I don't I think we care too much. We're too hyper aware of prospects and where they rank and, you know, whether or not they're getting traded and who, and who values what. Uh, what it ultimately comes down to, and I, Rick Hahn made this point at a, when he was talking at Saber Seminar, it's like when he goes and makes a trade now, he knows every single White Sox fan is going to immediately run to to us or to BA or to fan graphs and find out where these guys ranked. What did they give up? 
and then there's a they, they they're all doing the mental math. They're all little GMs. Um, you know, there's a there's a real you know PR can be a PR and marketing issue for them. You know, the te- they might get angry. That it's entirely possible. You know, your Red Sox fans got really angry when they traded Anderson Espinosa. That's a that's a thing. But ultimately, the goal is to win baseball games, is to win a pennant, is to win the World Series. Um, and I think sort of the the overarching problem the game's going to have to grapple with over the next few years, um, you know, maybe as soon as the next uh, CBA negotiation, is that a lot of the teams don't see it this way, that way anymore. Like that's not really the end goal. If it is, it's winning games four years from now. But you don't know what the landscape's going to look like four years from now. You just don't. Um, you know, if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you have one of the best farm systems in baseball. It's absolutely loaded. Uh, balanced pitchers, hitters, upside, floor, you know, close to the majors, further away. It's a pipeline. It's a true pipeline. Yeah, you still got the Yankees and the Red Sox in your division. Like, it's not like the the parameters, it doesn't get easy. Just because it's not like you magically flip a switch and all these guys, you know, you're, you're I know Baseball America, I don't know if they still did it, but they do the 2022 projected lineup or the five-year-out projected lineup uh, with the guys that were in the organization. It almost never actually ends up looking like that because that's a that's a lifetime for these guys in terms of, you know, developing as, as baseball players. So I don't think prospects are overvalued. I think, you know, having young cost-controlled players as the foundation of your team is great because, you know, if you're the Astros, it allows you to go out and get Justin Verlander. If you're the Red Sox, you can pay J.D. Martinez $150 million because you've got, you know, Benintendi and Devers making the minimum. You know, there's a there's a balance there. But, you know, again, organizational ranking flags don't exist. The only flags that you fly are pennants. And that has to be the end goal. Prospects can get you there. But I think you have to be, you know, realistic about what they offer you. And to tie it back into the Phillies thing, you know, JT Realmuto is an established all-star major league catcher. Um, maybe that's worth trading a top prospect arm away that's probably two or three years away, given that it'll need to be stretched out and he hasn't even pitched in the upper minors yet. You know, maybe you're looking at like, I want to try to win in, 19, in 2019 and 2020 because we really don't know what the NL East is going to look like in 2021. We don't know what like, our own system is going to look like in 2021. So yeah, uh, go for it. I mean, the, the sort of follow-up to that is you have that, you should probably also sign one of Harper and Machado. Um, but there is value in, if you're trying to win right now, there is value in surety over sort of the unknown. You've been listening to Jeffrey Paternostro. He is the senior prospect writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, thanks again.